We all want our children to do well, naturally. And what's great about being a parent is that, despite what my own children think, I used to be a teen. So I've been through school, I've done homework, to varying degrees of timeliness, I've revised for exams, or at least made a good show of it. But whether you've struggled or excelled, it doesn't matter, because we parents have done this. So how difficult can it be? Sure, we might not know our TikToks from our snaps or understand how modern celebrities can be famous if they're not on TV, but surely the perennial approach to studying and revising is where we really come into our own. Or is it? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, these could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health. Or they could be quite focused, like how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at the science of learning and what we can do to help our teens be better at it. It's a real pleasure today to be joined by Patrice Bain. Patrice is an educator, a speaker and an author. She's regularly featured in international press and articles, as well as talking at events all over the world. Patrice has spent more than 15 years working with cognitive scientists, turning academic research into meaningful approaches that can be adopted by teachers. And now, thanks to her recently published Powerful Teaching, A Guide for Parents, it can be adopted by us parents too. Patrice, thank you so much for joining me. As exams loom, so pressure builds. And that pressure is felt by students and parents alike. We've seen it in the way that our students talk about mocks and finals, but also amongst their parents, who are starting to pay much more attention to how much time their children are spending revising. Now, it doesn't matter who you are, what your parenting style is, or what your hopes are for their future. Every parent wants their child to do as well as they can and fulfil their potential. Patrice, it's natural for parents to want their best for their children, But is it appropriate for them to get involved in their studies beyond encouraging, or should it be left to the professionals? Short answer, yes. However, a lot of that depends on the parent and the child. What I have found is what I call the teaching triangle, when it's the teacher, the parent, and the child, the student. Because what happens is... I have found that retrieval is so important. When parents have conversations with their children about what they're learning, this is not only a wonderfully rich dialogue, but it also promotes retrieval, which means you are helping get that information into long-term memory. So to me, this is a win-win having wonderful conversations between parents and what their children are learning. And sometimes 
I know as a parent, I get to learn a few things <laughs> that perhaps I had forgotten or maybe even didn't learn back when I was their age. So I see it as a wonderful win-win. I can absolutely relate to relearning, I guess, or rediscovering things that I'd forgotten from my own school days. Alarmingly, I think more than I would care to admit. But it's a good practice, I think, to, as you say, to go through that with your child. What I worry about, though, is that when I was doing this, preparing for public exams for GCSEs, so this is now my second time around, but the first time, I worried that actually I wasn't doing it right by sort of the encouragement and the support that I was given back then. I didn't know anything about retrieval. So it was, I think, as typical parents do, was just trying to get our child to spend more time and being satisfied by a good highlighted extract from a book. Are there common pitfalls that, that you've experienced parents going through in, in terms of support? Oh, absolutely. For one thing, as parents, we've been through school. So we often think of ourselves as, well, we did it. We survived. So we know how to learn. But so much has been researched since that time. So for example, there's things called narrow myths, things that just aren't effective. And one of those is highlighting. One of those is cramming before an exam. A caveat to that is you might cram before an exam and you might do really well that following day, but then the information is gone. And what we want to do is, as teachers is to get learning into long-term memory. So there are more effective, more efficient ways to study. And when you teach your students how to study, when those big exams come, they're less anxious because they are so confident that they know that information. We did a study with over 1,500 students. They had been using retrieval and spacing, and we had asked them, do you feel more or less anxious for semester exams? And only 6% of the 1,500 students said they were more anxious. And that is because when students know how to learn, when they know how to spend their time efficiently, when they know how to differentiate between what they know and what they don't know, feedback-driven metacognition, they're ready. And you see that a lot, don't you, I think, as well, that if students aren't prepared as much as they would like to be themselves, or the deadline is looming and the exams are now imminent, that actually you default to either what's easiest or what you think is most comfortable. As you say, there's a whole body of research that your book talks about that really shows that these aren't the effective ways anymore, that while it might be easy, it might feel productive. And certainly as a parent, as I say, I was always encouraged to see a highlighter on a desk. It seemed like, it seemed like things were happening. This research isn't new, though, is it? We were talking to Kate Jones a couple of episodes ago and, and was talking about research that's been around for decades. So how is it that this research is now only sort of coming to mainstream, I guess? Is it something that teachers have known about for a long while but have kept a secret? I would say no. It really, truly is just coming to light. Most research up until 2006 in the United States was done 
at universities, in laboratories, with college students. And my classroom was one of the first where research was done in an authentic classroom with students. And even then, a lot of this research was located in scientific journals and magazines and books that teachers often didn't have the time to read or know where to look or the jargon was was really hard to understand. And so it has really truly been in, I would say the last 10 years and, and especially the last five years that teachers and administrators and parents are finding this information to be accessible and relatable and easy to follow. And I think that relatable bit really does come across in the book. The example that you were talking about, amongst many examples, I should say, of the penny. Now, obviously you're, you're American, but, but fortunately we Brits have pennies as well, so it translates well across the pond. Yeah. The, this idea of a penny, so we, we all know what a penny is and what it looks like, but actually if we started to try to draw it, which way does the queen face, in our case, what writing goes around the side, actually and that does highlight, doesn't it, that difference between something that you've learnt and something that you're just sort of exposed to. Well, and I think that goes back to those myths that just because we see something doesn't mean we know it. And so when students are rereading their notes, when they're rereading highlights, when they have flashcards where they simply look at the flashcard, turn it over if that's the way they do it, it's like looking at those pennies. Just because you see it doesn't mean you know it. And the key is really being able to retrieve or to pull that information back out. So would you explain to us then the process of learning and, and then where retrieval comes into that, if it's, as you say, different from simply being exposed to it and simply seeing it? If we could just get back to the basics, and I always started the first day of school with my students, I'm your teacher and I'm going to teach you how to learn. And I think the beauty of this is you can do this remotely, you can do it in person, but just having the conversation with teaching your students how to learn. And going back to the basics, there's three steps. The first is encoding, and that's when we get the information into our heads. We're familiar, you know, we see something, okay, it's there. The second step is storage. But it's this third step that is so important, and that is being able to pull that information out, being able to find where it is so we can use it. And that simple three-step process really resonates with students. I often ask my students, again, on one of the first days, have you ever studied really hard for a test and you didn't do well? Of course, that applies to everybody. And to parents, have you ever witnessed your child sitting at the dining room table studying? You saw them do it and they come back and they didn't do well. Well, there's research, researched reasons why that happens. And being able to teach students and parents those three steps of learning and the strategies 
that will promote retrieval is such a game changer. So if we take those one at a time then, the encoding bit, as I understand it, is sort of that experience. So that, that's what happens in the classroom, is it? It can. It can be through watching a video. It could be through seeing something online. Encoding is kind of like exposure to it, kind of like seeing that penny. You see something, but it doesn't mean you know it yet. But you still, you need that encoding. You need to be able to have the information in there and stored so then you can act on that. Once we've been exposed to something and it's gone into our memory, because, of course, if we don't know what we, we don't know, so you, you need to have experienced it once for it to, to go in there. And then in order to strengthen the bonds of the memory, what we should be doing then is practising retrieving it. Yes. And what are the most effective ways of doing that for students? Because what you've said is before that rereading through the notes isn't retrieval in the truest sense, I guess, because actually you're being prompted by the words that someone else has has written. So retrieval is, is it an art form? It can be, can't it? There are so many ways to retrieve. And before we even get to the students, let me just say this. How many times have you parked somewhere and you think, oh, where did I park the car when you come out? You know, that I use retrieval all the time. I think for all of us, whether we're students, whether we're not students, we can all benefit from being able to encode something, but then go ahead and retrieve it. For students, say you're reading a text at home, you're doing some homework. One of the most effective things you can do is simply after you read, you know, it depends on the age of the child, but simply close the book and write down what you just read. What were the key points? Write down the three key points of what you just read. That simple, simple task has now gone from encoding and storage to retrieving that information. As teachers, what is so important is if you are doing a lecture or, or showing a video clip or doing a PowerPoint or, you know, whatever you are doing to simply pause, close books, switch the slide and say, write down two of the most important things we just discussed. So it's simple things that don't cost any extra money that you can go from encoding and storage to promoting retrieval. As a parent, you know, there are so many rich opportunities to just say, you know, what were two things you learned in geography today? You are helping your student get that information into long-term. And again, you have a dialogue opener. And so you make a change from trying to find out what they had for lunch, <laughs> which is always an uphill battle in our house. I'm not sure why it's so difficult. And you can see that, that actually it's an easy, casual, it's not high stakes, there's no, there's no pressure, just a casual couple of things that you did. What did you learn? Exactly. And, you know, you hit a key point there. The key is low stakes, no stakes. When we retrieve, 
We like trivia. We like to sit around and talk about family lore. We like to bring up, you know, vacations and meals at restaurants. We don't get graded on those, but we're retrieving. And with our children, they don't have to be graded on all of this. Simply be able to converse. That strengthens memories. It's really interesting you talk about the family law discussions, the memories that become myths and like a folklore. Because I was talking about this with my wife earlier, that she has a rich and varied recollection of her childhood. It's phenomenal. They will relive it regularly. Certainly with Christmas coming up, the story of the drinks trolley will be mentioned. There'll be the voila answers out. All of these kinds of things will come through. And it's great and it's lovely. But actually, I don't have the same of my childhood. And it's not that my childhood wasn't happy by any stretch of the imagination. It came from a loving home and three brothers. But I just don't think we did that in the same way, sort of regale ourselves with the stories of last Christmas or a couple of months ago, or do you remember that holiday to the Costa Brava? It just it wasn't a thing. And so actually, in talking about the fact that I'd be doing this podcast, I did say I wonder actually if that is the case in point, that actually you remember more because you remember more often. Yes, <laughs> that's it. That's retrieval. And another very important, we call them power tools in powerful teaching, but a, a research principle is spacing. That if you retrieve something and then you never go back to it, you will lose it. But spacing is when you revisit information. So again, whether it's family lore, whether it's what you learned in history class, whether it was something you did in science, what you're doing is you are spacing out, you are revisiting, you're retrieving again, which strengthens those memories. So as you said, there was a moment where that first piece of retrieval comes from what you've just experienced. So you've reread the chapter, close the chapter and answer a couple of questions, or you've had your day at school and maybe in the car on the way home, what were the two things that you learned in geography? So that first instance can be fairly quick to promote retrieval. Is that right? Yes, but give it some delay. You know, there have been studies done that if you teach, if you're the teacher and you teach a class and you give a quick quiz at the end of the class, chances are the students are going to all do really well. But 24 hours later, when there has been a little time to forget, that's when you really want to start retrieving. It's called a desirable difficulty. There's like this kind of sweet spot of learning that when you learn something and just start to forget it a little bit, that will create the best time for retrieval. And then do it again in a couple of weeks. As a teacher, and I would also do this as a parent, you know, we would discuss what they were learning, maybe at night over dinner or in the car, and go back in a week or two and ask about that again. And what you're doing is, again, creating an atmosphere where your children are learning, but it creates great conversations. Presumably the kind of thing that can be done quite easily as well. If the initial retrieval has been based on the flashcards, which again is something that's come up a lot. We're talking to Kate Jones and Adam Box as well, that creating these flashcards we can come back to. Actually, if they were put to one side, 
and jumbled up actually is something that you also talk about in your book that actually you can then return to those and as you say like a pop quiz so it doesn't have to be monumental it can just be casual exactly i also came up with what i call the four steps of metacognition too often students study what they know versus what they don't know and one of the keys is really helping students your children discriminate that important part between I know this, but I don't know this, so I need to focus on this. So the four steps is, first of all, make a judgment of learning. Do I know it or not? And so for my students, I would have them do a happy face or a star. The second step is answer all that you know. The third step is the first time you open your book or your notes, answer those that you didn't know, and then finally verify that what you thought you knew, you did. This might sound confusing if people are listening to it right now, but if you do go to powerfulteaching.org slash resources, everything's right there, strategies for you to download. But getting back, so rather than having my students do flashcards, I would have them do retrieval cards. So as soon as they saw a word or a definition, they would make that judgment of learning. Do I know it or not? And then that step two, now retrieve it. Because sometimes students have an illusion that they think they know something, but they don't. And so Another reason why I like using retrieval cards is that when students go to study on the card, they see if they had an initial question mark or a star, they knew it or they didn't. And they have this very simple method of studying what they didn't know that again, is so much more efficient and effective. You can see the temptation, can't you, with going back over something you know, because you feel good about yourself. I remember all about Oxbow Lakes. So actually, I feel that just by rereading those notes and just congratulating myself a little, that it's a job well done. And then something you talk about, this illusion of confidence that actually I'll do well because I've just sort of reinforced this myth. Presumably at the same time, though, you need to make sure, think, be mindful of spacing, that you don't only focus on those things that you have question marks over. If you know something, go over it three times, because if you answer it correctly the first time, it could be a fluke, right? (laughs) It was a good guess. And the second time, okay, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know that. But if you can nail it all three times, you've mastered that. You've got it. I feel like you you may have been looking into my soul when you know that the first time I answer anything is a guess. I feel like <laughs> that's become a little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so within the book, which I love, I think that as a parent who is just used to what I used to do, which was reading index cards, self-congratulation, moving on, that actually you between the pause to think about sections that you've got and the examples and a Mrs. Bain story sections, which I love, by the way, as well. It is full of really useful ideas and tips for parents to use. And did you say that they're also on your website then? If you go to powerfulteaching.org, which is the website for Powerful Teaching Unleash the Science of Learning, and go to resources, it has all of my templates. You can download the templates of all the strategies that I had created. Parents can do that. Teachers can do that. But with my book, you know, when you hear about research, that can be kind of scary. And for parents, 
that can be kind of scary too, but we all want our children to succeed. And so I wanted to write this guide. It's short, you know, you could read it in an afternoon. But again, I wanted to get information that word relatable again, that easy to understand, it's accessible. The guide has the things that I would use when I was working with the parents of my students, you know, tried and true over the years that I just want all parents to have access to this information that is out there and will help children internalize success. It's an oddity, I think, that when we become new parents, we'll tend to read books about what's happening during pregnancy, babies now the size of a walnut, all of these kinds of things. And as we prepare ourselves, and I think we become quite anxious about, am I going to do this well? No one ever told me how to change a nappy. What am I doing? And all of that. And then when they're when they're newborn, we might even read the naught to one, naught two, baby should be walking now. They're not reading War and Peace, so they underdeveloped. It's all of this kind of stuff happens. But then there's almost a dropping off point where we go, well, that's fine. We'll just we'll, we'll muddle through from here and we'll work it out. But actually, as you say, it's not that our brains are different. It's not that any of these things, I mean, technology has obviously changed a lot, but the fundamentals of being human hasn't. But actually, the way that we understand how we work, and in this case, how we learn has. It's, we, we understand a lot more now. And so going out and finding out more to help our children seems an entirely natural thing to do. I agree. And I think you were spot on too, that how often reading those books does drop off once our children hit maybe 10, 11 years old. And it doesn't have to be. The resources are there. Mm, absolutely. And I think this is one area. And I think also the other areas like mental health. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be reading the books because there are humbly great podcasts out there that will talk about these kinds of issues. But it does seem important that parents can access it and aren't afraid to question and challenge and look at other ways of doing things. Yeah. And let me share a little story because I think this is so important too for parents that almost every year, Towards the end of the, our first quarter, I would have students come up to me and say, Mrs. Bain, I have an A or I have a B in your class. And I know. And then their whole demeanor would change and they would say, but I never get good grades. I'm not smart. How can we allow this to happen? That my students were 11 years old who had already internalized failure. And I would turn that around and say, but look at your grade now, because now you know how to learn. And when we can start teaching our children how to learn, they don't internalize failure like that. When you think of those 11 year olds, what happens to them if they had internalized failure by the time they're in high school? The trajectory of their life, right, can be so different. And as parents, we want our children to be successful in school and we can change it. We can make that happen. So one of the things that I think is really interesting, and you opened with it as well, this idea that the first lesson in your class was I'm going to teach you how to learn. 
And you talk constantly about how you're explaining what it is that you're doing to the students. This isn't a behind closed doors, smoke and mirrors approach to, I'm going to trick you into learning. You're being very, very explicit about what it is that you're doing with the pupils. How important is empowering the student to take control of this in the process of them actually believing in themselves? I can't stress enough how important I feel this is. Students who usually get high marks will continue to do so. But it's those students who tend to struggle. I have said this, it's as if there was this private club of learning and they had never been invited. They think it's some kind of secret code that some children know and others don't. And when you open up learning and how to learn to all students, you find that these students who previously struggled, they just simply needed to learn how to learn. They absolutely flourish. And there's no reason why as parents, we can't provide that to our students. I say, you know, your child will have teachers and some may use research strategies and some may not, but you are that constant in your child's life. And being able to have them know how to learn, to see them internalize success, what a gift from a parent to a child. As you say, these are the kinds of things that don't conflict with schools. We're not talking about becoming an army of home educators. This is entirely complementary. It's part of that parenting role. What could become a more obvious, explicit part of that parenting role to help support learning as it goes on through the child's life? Again, you know, that teaching triangle that I talk about, and I don't see at all that it is a conflict to be doing this at home. What teacher would not want their students to come in being able to retrieve that information that teachers work so hard to deliver. You know, it's that perfect triangle. And transcends the subject knowledge as well, it seems, that it's not just then about how you learn your history or how you learn your geography, but actually learning to learn is is a, a lifelong skill that we all need, but I think it's probably especially true of our young people now because the change of pace in everything, I mean, the, the jobs market, the technology, I mean, everything, that actually if you don't believe through a, a fixed mindset early on that actually you can develop and learn and do other things, then actually their life chances are bound to be very, very limited, aren't they? Yes, and we can change it. And so what are the top three? If there were only three things that you could advise, I'm going to put you on the spot, three things to advise parents that they could start doing from tomorrow, what might they be? I think first and foremost, to understand how your child learns, how we all learn. I think that's so important. Just those three basic steps. So that's one. Another is to know that making mistakes is a part of learning. Making mistakes doesn't mean failure. It means I don't know it yet. I think that's real important. If parents might see students not do well on a test, 
for parents to be aware not only of learning, but how to encourage some strategies for use at home, how to help your child figure out, discriminate between what's known and what isn't. So let's see, mistake making, knowing how to learn, and and I guess the third would be that teaching triangle, that the parent-child relationship becomes richer when you can share learning. It provides conversations. It provides insights into what they're thinking. And all of those can so happen. You can have a richer relationship with your child. Patrice, I can't thank you enough for your time today. That was really interesting and what an insight into learning. I think that as adults, we approach learning as if it's something very natural. After all, we've been through it. But as we heard from Patrice, behind the scenes, huge strides have been made in understanding how we learn. Something that I could immediately relate to, both from my own personal experiences and watching my children revise, was Patrice's confidence myths. Rereading notes or textbooks makes us feel reassured. We read a passage, we're assured that we knew that, and then we move on. But it seems obvious now, especially having listened to Patrice, that there's a bit of an illusion of recollection going on there. Our confidence doesn't come from free recall, reaching into our long-term memory, but perhaps it's coming from our working memory because we've just put it there. Remember the example of the coin. We've all seen lots of them, but could we accurately draw one, at least without guessing which way the queen faces? The thing is, reading, rereading and highlighting is often the go-to method of study for so many of our young people. And as parents, we can often feel reassured that they're working hard when there's an open book and a notepad in front of them, and certainly I have in the past. Patrice's preferred approaches are entirely straightforward and can also easily be weaved into day-to-day routines. Retrieval practice, as we've heard before, is simply about calling something from our long-term memory through testing. And this could be flashcards with keywords and terms or questions on one side, and then the explanation or the answer on the reverse. Testing clearly takes the form then of checking how well you know the response before you've looked at it. I love Patrice's suggestion of marking confidence against each of these topics. Given how many subjects our children are studying and how content-rich we know that they are, it can easily be overwhelming. But this way, students can give special attention to those areas that they feel more unsure about. But, and it's a big but, it's important not to neglect all of those other areas and topics too. Being able to recall at one point isn't a guarantee that that will always be the case. And we've heard a lot about spaced learning from a few of our previous guests, and Patrice talked about it too, and this idea of desirable difficulty. Now, for me, this is a really interesting idea, but it's hard to put it into practice. How do you know you're almost forgetting something? But nevertheless, coming back to topics after a good amount of time can easily be planned into a revision schedule. I also really like that idea of keeping a stack of M's flashcards handy in the kitchen and randomly pop quizzing every now and again, maybe before breakfast or after dinner. It only needs to take a few seconds and it doesn't have to feel onerous. 
In fact, I think it's important that it doesn't feel onerous. We've heard before about the importance of low stakes quizzing. I think that... Oh. Patrice has talked us through some fantastic alternative techniques which build perfectly on what previous guests have shared with us, including Kate Jones, Adam Boxer and and Dawn Cox. And in her book, Powerful Teaching, A Guide for Parents, which I can't recommend enough, you'll find a whole host of techniques and ideas that Patrice has shared. I think that one of the key features of what we heard today from Patrice is sharing these ideas with our teens there's a definite element of empowering them. Now, when I was going through this the first time with Jake, I all too often fell into that trap of trying to implement something that I knew was in his best interests without especially taking the time to explain the why of it. Now, we don't need to cite the academic research to be able to talk to our children about the three stages of memory, encoding, storage and retrieval, But describing the process will help make sense of why methods like highlighting or writing notes from a book are not the most effective use of their time. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this really interesting and practically useful. I certainly have. If it's inspired you to try some things a little differently, perhaps you'd take a moment to leave a quick five-star rating and maybe a review. It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, you sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode soon, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.